Amen. Well, I think we can, uh, we can all agree that we are tired of election cycles, right? If four years doesn't come again in a really long time, I'll be happy, right? Um, tired of being disappointed by human leaders, tired of the deep divides that come over who will be the leader, uh, tired by the constant changes in leadership. Even the good ones die or pass off the scene, right? And we're back to the drawing board having to find another leader. Uh, the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, provide a, a crash course in leadership. We see the, the type of people that, uh, the type of leader that people generally look for, and we see the type of leader that God looks for. And ultimately, we're given insight into the eternal king and kingdom that God will establish through Christ. Uh, David is going to be a a pointer. He's going to be a a template for the type of king that is coming. Uh, We are continuing our road trip through the 66 books of the Bible, so this has been a different sort of series. Usually, it would be verse by verse and Uh, kind of working our way through uh, a book of the Bible, but we are covering entire books of the Bible in one message in this current series. So um, we've we've caught a little bit of a rhythm that way, and I think have uh, found benefit in viewing things from a big picture perspective and seeing major themes and threads in God's redemptive plan. So just setting the context again, sin and death have entered into God's perfect creation. Humanity is separated from God because of their sin, but God is working out a rescue plan. And actually God put that plan in place in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin. Genesis 3.15 records the first proclamation of the gospel uh, where God says to the woman, I'm going to Uh, through your offspring is going to come one who will defeat the serpent, who will crush the serpent and make all things right. And uh, Adam keyed in on that because uh, he actually, that's the point at which he calls his wife Eve, which means mother of all life or mother of the living. Adam recognized, and that promise was the hope of the human race. It was going to come through Eve. And I think Adam and Eve were, were keeping track. I think they probably thought that the, the deliverer might even come in their own lifetime. So they have a son. Their first son is Cain. And that, that name means obtained or acquired. Essentially, Eve says, I've acquired the man, the deliverer. Now, she was wrong, right? Turned out that Cain was a an ungodly man. He was actually part of the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. So maybe it's Abel, our other son Abel. He's a godly man. And then, of course, Cain killed Abel, right? So Adam and Eve have another son named Seth, which means replacement. For God provided a replacement for Abel, whom Cain slew. So Adam and Eve are tracing this out. I think they're really keeping track and tracing the line of the deliverer. And of course, that promise is reiterated many generations down the line to a man named Abraham. And then again to his son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. We keep following this line, looking for the one who would come who would bring deliverance. 
Well, we step back into the story here at a dark time in Israel's history. Again, Israel was the descendants of Abraham, so they have a significant place in this redemptive plan. But it was a dark time, again, the time of the judges. Uh, They had abandoned God's law. Uh, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a, a time of anarchy and chaos. But God continued to be faithful to his covenant promises even during this time. And God continued to preserve the line of the deliverer. Matter of fact, we looked last week at the book of Ruth. And we catch a little glimpse, a little glimmer of hope. (laughs) uh, How God preserves the line of the Messiah through a foreign woman named Ruth. And Ruth would be the great-grandmother of a man named David. So we're given just a little glimpse of of a figure that's coming. And Samuel helps us understand how we get there. How do we get from anarchy to monarchy? How do we get from chaos to the crown? We trace the narrative here in 1 Samuel through three main individuals. Samuel, Saul, and then of course David. And the account begins here of Samuel begins in the hill country of Ephraim and I think even the geography is helpful for us it helps us orient where we are in the story this was a little graphic we used a couple weeks ago to describe the time of the judges and part of what we were trying to demonstrate is that each of the judges that 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 God raised up was actually just a, a kind of a provincial ruler. I mean, they, these, little, these judges were, were not leading the nation. They were just putting out forest fires in different parts of the, the country. And we ended, these were just five of the, the judges that we, we highlighted. But down in the lower left-hand corner is Samson along the Mediterranean Sea. Samson was, uh, came onto the scene at a time when Israel was oppressed by the Philistines. And here's the, the hill country of Ephraim, okay? This, this yellow dot represents where Samuel comes onto the scene. And I think really it would be helpful to think that Samuel picks up where Samson left off. If you want to think of it that way, Samuel is the next of the judges. And in the chronology, um, so the Philistines were in the forefront at the time of Samson and the Philistines are still on the forefront here when we come to Samuel. So if we can have that linkage in our mind with the time of the judges and even the location here in Israel, it, it might be helpful for us. We also encounter here a closed womb. Uh, we're introduced to a man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And uh, they were childless. But the text is is actually more specific. It says that the Lord had closed her womb. Chapter 1, verse 5. No indication that Hannah had done anything wrong. God was not punishing her. God simply had a higher purpose in view. And I find this to be so comforting. In the midst of our suffering, we can be confident that God is working out His great purposes for His glory and our ultimate good. And uh, uh, to me, that's, that's, so, that's so powerful. I, I, we're, our, our world is a mess, right? 
um, my life is a mess most, much of the time, right? And, and many of you have been praying for Johnny. We've got some physical dynamics we're working through with my, my son, my 22-year-old son who has Down syndrome, and he's lost 40 pounds since August, and he's just not doing well physically. And I mean, we could all tell our stories, right? We, we could tell stories, couldn't we, Rebecca? Of chronic, debilitating back pain and uh, ailing parents and grandparents and death and uh, cancer and leukemia, right? We've traced it already this morning. And, and so, boy, our faith does not remove our trials, but it does give us a framework. It does help us understand our trials are not arbitrary, haphazard, hopeless. God is working even in the midst of our sorrows and struggles to accomplish greater purposes. And uh, yeah, there's, there's great hope here in Hannah's, in Hannah's story. We find that God responded to Elkanah and Hannah. Uh, they would travel to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located. They would travel there every year, and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. And on one of these journeys, Hannah's grief reached a breaking point. Uh, there in the temple court, she cried out to the Lord, and she was beside herself in anguish. As a matter of fact, she was, she was so emotional, and so, um, uh, so moved that Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. I mean... She was carrying on, right, out of her mind with grief and anguish. And she made a a, a very interesting vow to the Lord. She said, uh, if you give me a son, I will dedicate that son to you. I will give him back to you. And God did give Hannah and Elkanah a son whom they named Samuel. And it means heard The name means heard by God. God answered their prayers. And Hannah was true to her word. After Samuel was done nursing, which could have been five or six years of age, she brought him back to Shiloh, presented him to Eli, the priest, and left him there in the temple. Can you imagine We've had exchange students staying with us, and they'll stay here in the States for four years. And I think, how would their parents do it? <laughs> Give up those key times of training and trust that to a stranger like, like, like me, right? Um, but Hannah, I think, does remind us that our children are not our own possessions to be kept for our own purposes, Hannah has an understanding of a bigger picture of service to the Lord. Several years ago, I was talking with the president of a mission agency, one of our partner mission agencies, and I said, you know, what, just as a general question, what are some of the challenges you're facing in missions today? And without hesitation, he said, Christian parents who value proximity and safety above all else when it comes to their children. Ouch. <laughs> may, God, may God protect us from such a view where those kids are there for my comfort, my benefit. I want them close to me, and we lose sight of 
the Great Commission, which, by the way, is not safe. At least not in our traditional ways of thinking about safety, is it? But Hannah got it. And she, makes it, she actually breaks into song here in chapter 2. And she says in verse 9, He, speaking of God, He will guard the feet of His faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Hannah understood that the safest place to be was in service to God. This was the place of joy and reward and fulfillment and security in an ultimate sense. And so I think Hannah models something here that's really, really beautiful. She, she loved her son, but she was willing to release him to service for the Lord. Uh, Samuel grew up, we're told, given a brief summary of his growing up years here in chapter 2, verse 26. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So he pleased people, he won favor with people, but even more significantly, he won favor with God. Now Samuel's godliness is particularly notable because of the environment in which he was raised. Again, the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Eli the priest has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were bad news. They were wicked men. God had made provision for the priests. Uh, They were able to take a portion of the sacrifice that people would bring and use it for their own purposes, to, to, to cook that meat. And that, that was part of how God intended to provide for the priests. But Hophni and Phinehas demanded the best cuts of meat. The, the, the portions of the sacrifice that were reserved for God. They used their position, their authority for selfish purposes. The text says that they also were in the habit of sleeping with the women who worked there at the tabernacle. In addition to this, when Israel went to war against the Philistines, Hophni and Phinehas took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Here's a bright idea, right? They didn't serve God, but they wanted God's blessing and protection. And so they used the Ark of the Covenant, uh, a symbol of God's presence, as a good luck charm. (laughs) Needless to say, this brought about God's stern judgment on the people. Israel suffered a bitter defeat. Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and the ark was captured by the Philistines. When Eli, the priest, heard that the ark had been captured, not when he heard that his sons had been killed, but when he heard that the ark had been captured, he passed out, fell backward off of his chair, broke his neck, and died. Phinehas' wife was pregnant at that time. And when she heard the news, again, about the the capture of the ark, she went into labor. And she died giving birth to a son. And with her dying breath, she called her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. For God's glory had departed from Israel. His presence had gone from the people. The nation had hit rock bottom. So God brought judgment on Israel, but he acted in a unique way to preserve his own glory. The Philistines would have concluded that they were superior to Israel. 
and they would have further concluded that their God, Dagon, was superior to the God of Israel. But God accomplished these things in such a way as to guard his own glory. Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in the temple of their God, Dagon. But when they came the next morning, they found Dagon flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought, oh, that's strange. I didn't know it was so windy last night. We better hoist this this idol back up again on the shelf. When they came in the next morning, Dagon was once again on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And this time, his hands and his feet were broken off. The Philistines were made to understand in no uncertain terms that the God of Israel was superior to any other God. And they would ultimately return the Ark. So God preserved his glory even in the midst of the sins of his people. We then encounter a disappointing demand. Samuel was a good leader who directed the people in God's ways, but he was not going to live forever, and his sons did not follow the Lord. So Israel's leaders asked Samuel for a king. Chapter 8, verse 4, they specifically said, we want a king like the nations around us. Notice God's assessment of this in chapter 8, verse 6. But when they, the people, said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Samuel, this isn't about you. This is about me and their rejection of me. Now we know that God intended to give Israel a king. We could actually go back to Deuteronomy and find where God was laying groundwork for this. But the problem was, so one day he was going to give them a king, but the problem was they wanted a king on their own timetable and they wanted a certain kind of king. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And though they would come to regret it, God gave them what they asked for. And that brings us to Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul had a promising beginning. He certainly seemed to be everything that they wanted. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becharet, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. He was the picture of a great warrior. Matter of fact, he was even from the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most fierce fighting tribes among the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, We're given accounts of how many left-handed warriors were in Benjamin. Uh, These were warriors whose parents had tied their right hands behind their backs, forcing them to develop dexterity with their left hand so that they could fight with either hand, a tremendous advantage in battle. He was a Benjaminite, and he was tall, dark, and handsome, a head taller than anyone else in Israel. In a private ceremony, Samuel anointed Saul to convey God's authority that involved pouring oil on the person. It conveyed God's blessing or authority on them. In chapter 10, 
God's Spirit came upon Saul in an unmistakable, obvious way. And then Samuel conducted a public coronation, and the people rallied behind Saul. Matter of fact, as his first public act, he rescued the city of Jabesh Gilead. Remember that city. But he came to their, to their rescue and defeated the Ammonites, and everything was off to a great start for Saul. And then we see his true colors. Uh, two particular incidents sort of reveal Saul's heart and really spell the end of his kingdom. The first had to do with uh, the Philistines. The account is recorded in chapter 13. Israel was gathered for battle. Samuel had given Saul very specific instructions. He said, I'm going to return in seven days, and I want you to wait for me. Uh, When I return, we'll offer a sacrifice. We'll seek the Lord's blessing before we go into battle against the Philistines. So Samuel leaves, and Saul, over the next few days, begins to get very nervous. Uh, They were vastly outnumbered by the Philistines. And the Philistines had all the the latest cutting-edge military technology of the day. They had iron. They had iron chariots. They had iron swords. We're told, actually, that Saul and his son Jonathan were the only ones that even had swords within the Israelite army. So... They stood there looking across the valley at the Philistines and with each passing day more of Saul's soldiers began to leave. (laughs) Sneak out the back door. First it was just one or two and then ten or twenty and then hundreds began leaving and Saul got scared. He, 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 He decided he had to take matters into his own hands and he offered the sacrifice himself and didn't wait for Samuel. When Samuel does show up, Samuel is hot. Notice what Samuel says, chapter 13, verse 11. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering." You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul craved the approval of people. Instead of listening to God's commands, he was listening to the the voices around him that were growing louder with each passing day. God determined to remove the kingdom from Saul. Another episode further reinforces Saul's character. It's found in chapter 15. This time, it's the Amalekites who are in view. Saul was given instructions to go to war against the Amalekites. God had determined to bring judgment on the Amalekites because of their sins and their cruelty against Israel in the past. So God gave very overt instructions to Saul. You are to destroy these people completely. People, animals, everything. 
Notice what Saul did, chapter 15, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. There's our first problem, right? And all his people he took... And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Once again, Samuel issues a scathing critique beginning in verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What is then the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They, They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people of the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of of the Lord. Again, we see Saul's thought process here. Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Once again, Saul is more concerned about the approval and the validation of people than he is about the approval of God. Samuel again tells him that God is going to remove the kingdom from him. Notice this postscript in verse 30 of chapter 15. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Saul says, okay, I get it. God's going to take the kingdom from me, but can, you, can, you, can we at least keep up appearances? Can you come back with me and honor me before the people? I mean, this is Saul's issue. He's full of himself. Looking to please and impress people instead of looking to impress and please God. In the final chapters of the book, we have Saul and David, and I've chosen to list it that way. Not just David, but Saul and David. David comes onto the scene, but both Saul and David are sort of held in tension. Uh, We're allowed to see their two stories uh, side by side, to see the distinctions in character between the two. Chapter 16, God speaks to Samuel. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. God essentially says, I gave the people the king they wanted, a king like the nations around them. 
Now I'm going to give them the king of my choosing. <laughs> so let's go, Samuel. Get your, get your flask of oil again. And I've got a new assignment for you. It quickly becomes evident that this next king will not be like Saul. Samuel is sent to Bethlehem to Je- a man named Jesse. And so Samuel goes and says to Jesse, Gather all your sons. We're to, have, uh, we're to offer sacrifices to the Lord. I've got business with you today. And so Jesse gathers all of his sons. They're all lined up. The oldest is Eliab. Notice how the account unfolds beginning in chapter 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So even Samuel, godly Samuel, looks at Eliab, the oldest of Jesse's sons, and says, this has got to be the guy. Uh, this, is God, this is the real deal here. And God says, no. He goes all the way down through all of Jesse's sons and says, no, none of these, do you have any other sons? Jesse had not even Jesse thought so little of his son David, he had not even brought him to the feast. He was still out in the fields watching sheep. He was just a kid. So unimpressive. And Samuel says, go get him. He's the one. What a contrast to Saul. God was not going to accomplish his purposes through David's physical strength and acumen and ingenuity and bloodlines god was going to accomplish things with david through his power through god's power so samuel anoints david in the presence of his brothers the spirit that had left saul now comes upon david and we see the contrast being played out between these two saul's again was a life focused on self Talked about how he was full of himself, looking for the approval of people. After defeating the Amalekites back in chapter 15, it says that he constructed a monument in his own honor. This was a very Saul thing to do. And as David grew in fame and notoriety, remember after defeating Goliath, uh, the people began to write songs about David and Saul became very jealous. Someone else was stealing the limelight here. And so he sets out to eliminate David. He tries to kill him on several occasions. He hunts him down throughout the wilderness. He actually ordered the the killing of 85 priests because he thought they were harboring David. Think about this. He, He pits himself against the Lord's priests. He's so concerned about protecting his own status Any rivals are to be squashed, even if it means killing 85 of the Lord's priests. This is Saul, a life focused on self. And David, in contrast, was a life focused on God. He seemed to see, David seemed to see everything from God's perspective. He comes onto the scene, of course, in chapter 17 in this account with Goliath. But even as a young boy, David was deeply bothered by the taunts of Goliath, the Philistine warrior. Goliath was insulting his God. 
Saul offers great reward to the one who will defeat Goliath, but David doesn't care about that. He's not motivated by that. Verse 26 of chapter 17, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David had no delusions that he could defeat Goliath in his own strength. But he believed that God would give him the victory. Right? This Godward perspective. Saul says, verse 33, you're not, Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. You can't do this. And David's like, you're right, I can't. But notice what he says in verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. I'm not so great, but I have a great God. The story of of David and Goliath is not about David's courage and bravery. It's about his faith in his God. Instance after instance, we see David's perspective oriented around God. David has several opportunities to kill Saul. Remember, Saul's hunting him, and David has opportunities to retaliate, but he, 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 he knows that he cannot act against the Lord's anointed. In other words, he recognized that God had positioned Saul as king. Who was he to kill the one that God had put in that position? By the way, a good reminder for us as we think about authority in our day, right? God puts all people in positions of authority. David recognizes, I can't sin against God in this way. David repeatedly inquired of the Lord. Every time there was a decision to be made, he would bring the matter to the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul is, is consulting the witch of Endor, right, to try to get insight on key decisions. David continues to consult the Lord. God gave them a great victory over some of their enemies, and David had to remind his soldiers that it was the Lord who had given them victory. Again, just his mindset, just time after time, his mindset was oriented around God and his glory. Great contrast between these two kings. 1 Samuel ends on Mount Gilboa, where Saul and his son Jonathan die in battle against the Philistines. Actually, I think there's a nobility here in how Saul ends his life. He's finally doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't supposed to be chasing David throughout the wilderness. He was supposed to be fighting the Philistines, fighting God's enemies. And finally, Saul gets it right here in the end. And the people of Jabesh Gilead, remember Jabesh Gilead? They were the ones that Saul rescued as his first act as king. They didn't forget Saul's kindness. And after... Saul is killed and his body is put up on the wall of the city. The people of Jabesh Gilead travel through the night, cross the Jordan River, risk their lives to reclaim Saul's body and give it a proper burial. So some, some, some neat, uh, noble acts that are accomplished here in chapter 31. Well, what are the lessons? Remain confident that God is continuing to work out his purposes, even in the midst of sin and suffering. 
Again, this is back to Hannah, back to the account of her being childless. Uh, It seems that everything was going wrong, but we see God's sovereign hand even in those difficulties. Such a great reminder for us. Two, pray pointedly and passionately, knowing that God responds to the cries of his people. Hannah is a great example of this. She cries out to the Lord. James says uh, the, the, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? That uh, those who cry out to the Lord, he, he will hear their prayers. We see it with, uh, with the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. God heard their cries. We see it in the early church. The church gathered when Peter is in prison and God responds uh, over and over and over again. May God move us to prayer uh, after the pattern of Hannah. Uh, Recognize that our sin separates us from God. That whole scene of the ark being captured um, and the pronouncement of Ichabod, God's glory has departed from Israel. What a pointed reminder of the consequences of our sin. We are rightly under God's judgment, and under his righteous wrath because of our sin. God has made a way for us to be saved, for us to be reconciled to him. But in and of ourselves, in our natural state, we are separated from God because of our sin. My friends, I plead with you, if you've not joined yourself to Christ, if you've not turned to him in simple faith, I plead you to do it. You stand under God's wrath apart from Christ. This is why the gospel is the gospel. It's why it's good news. Because we can't remedy that relationship with God on our own apart from the atoning work of Christ. Focus on pleasing God instead of pleasing people. There again is that great contrast between Saul and David. Give attention to the heart more than to appearances. We like Samuel, right? Like the people are enamored with stature and wealth and influence and power and charisma god is concerned with the heart may god give us that orientation as well finally cultivate a god-centered worldview here's just a smattering of those references some of which i already talked about where david reflects his orientation towards god and too often we are godless which simply means we live as if God doesn't exist. We, we carry on, we make decisions, we make our plans, we plot out our calendar, we use our discretionary time without any consideration of God. And uh, David models for us what it is to live life centered on God. In terms of our gospel glimpse, Jesus is the eternal king who comes from the line of David. We're going to learn next week that David is not the be-all, end-all. David had his own sin issues, but David does give us a glimpse of the the king who's going to come. Uh, Jesus, like David, was born in Bethlehem. Jesus, like David, was anointed, right? This whole concept of anointing, uh, being authorized by God. We read about it in Psalm 2. Uh, Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus is a shepherd king after the pattern of David. Uh, He's a man after God's own heart. And so again, we get a glimpse of a coming king and a coming kingdom.